Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And a while back I was studying, and in the course of my study I found myself in the book of Proverbs. One particular subject that is addressed over and over by Solomon within its pages caught my attention. That subject was pride. Now when I talk about pride today, I'm talking about vain glory. I'm talking about it in the sense of the first two definitions that appear in Webster's New 20th Century Dictionary. It says of pride, an overhigh opinion of oneself, exaggerated self-esteem, conceit, and then secondly, the showing of this in behavior, haughtiness, arrogance. Look with me at just a few statements regarding pride found in Proverbs. First, consider Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13, where we read, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. In chapter 11, verse 2, Solomon wrote, When pride comes, there comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Chapter 13 and verse 10 tells us something that experience has surely proven to be true. It says, Through presumption comes nothing but strife, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. The word for presumption there is the same word translated as pride in chapter 11 and verse 2. Over in chapter 14 and verse 3 we find, In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. If that is the translation you have, by looking in the margin of your Bible, you will find a rod of pride as a valid translation of a rod for his back. The idea is that pride will be a cause of punishment for the one who has it. Perhaps the most well-known reference to pride in Proverbs is found in chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Solomon writes, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And finally, I want to read chapter 29, verse 23, which simply says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. My friends, I want to ask you today, did you ever consider what the life and death of Jesus teaches us about pride in the sense that we are discussing it now? It is pretty important to know the answer to that question because the Bible teaches us that Jesus is our example and that we are to follow in his footsteps. It's pretty important to know the answer to that question because the Bible teaches us in Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 5, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, that is pride. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
The truth of the matter is that the life of Jesus is a standing rebuke of every form of pride in the sense of an overly high opinion of oneself manifested in a haughty or arrogant manner. It seems that everything that man has a tendency to puff ourselves up about and get to feeling pretty important about, and maybe even better than others, the life of Jesus tells us just hold on there for a moment and consider me. Let's look at some of the things that people tend to exhibit pride about and compare it to the life of Christ. We will start with the pride of birth. I remember in my studies of the history of Western civilization that in years past many societies had caste systems. Where you were in that system essentially depended upon the position of your ancestors and you were born into a particular caste. If you were born into the aristocracy, you were superior, better than those who were not in such a position by birth. Even today in the United States, there are families into which a child can be born, and by virtue of being part of that family, they are immediately viewed as a person of privilege and are held by others and themselves as being a little bit above everybody else. It has always been a source of amusement and sadness to me to hear someone say something like, do you know who my father is? Or do you know who my grandfather was? When such a statement is indicating a certain arrogancy, a certain pride of birth. It is kind of silly to be puffed up about something I didn't have anything to do with, isn't it? But more importantly, the life of Jesus shows us how unfoolish that kind of attitude is. Turning to Luke chapter 2, we'll read the first seven verses. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The Bible tells us, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that a census was to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first sentence taken when Cornelius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register, along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Who was Mary? Yes, she was of the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David, but that lineage had fallen considerably. She had no status in society, and in truth, the sum of the New Testament teaching concerning her is that she was a working-class Jewish woman of the best sort, deeply religious and looking for the coming of the Messiah. Who was Joseph? Well, do you remember what was said about Jesus in Matthew chapter 13? Let's go there and look at verses 54 through 57 where we find, And coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in the synagogue, so that they became astonished, astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And the sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, because Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Can we see the point? Jesus was in fact looked down on by some because of his birth. 
His father was a carpenter. His mother and brothers and sisters were still around and nothing special. This was not a special family. The Son of God, the most influential man who ever lived by his very birth, rebukes the foolishness of pride. What about the pride of wealth? Because of where my kids went to school, Vicki and I had the occasion to come across several people with the pride of wealth. Let me give you a few examples. One time Adam, my son, was riding with a friend of his from school and his friend's grandmother. They were riding down 7th Street in Louisville, Kentucky, a street of less than stellar reputation. And the grandmother said, I hate driving through this neighborhood. Adam just turned to her and said, I live right around the corner there. Another time, one of the parents of a volleyball player on Rachel's team arrived a little late for a game in the South End, which is where we lived, and she said in exasperation, all the people do in that part of town is eat at fast food restaurants and have their cars fixed. There's not much point in putting a great deal of pride in how much a person possesses materially in the sense of being haughty and arrogant, is there? I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Remember that passage? It, remi- it says, And he said to them, Beware and be of your on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build greater ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will you owe what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How much emphasis does Jesus put upon material things? Here is what the Son of God said. This is how much emphasis Jesus put on these kinds of things. He said, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20. If it had been the desire of the Father and of Jesus our Lord, he could have lived in the finest palace ever constructed and absolutely wallowed in wealth. It didn't mean a whole lot to Jesus, did it? Therefore, it shouldn't mean a whole lot to us. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit warned about the dangers of wealth, really warning about the pride of wealth. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, he said through Paul, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plague men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. How about the pride of personal appearance? Now, I'm not talking about being clean or putting on makeup and such. 
but I'm talking about an overly high opinion of how I look, entirely too much emphasis put on that. He can also be feeling real good that I don't look like so-and-so. In our day and age, we put so much importance upon how a person looks, even to the extent of making ourselves sick to look a particular way, or spending untold amounts of money to change the way we look. This pride of personal appearance is nothing new. Do you remember the case of Absalom, the son of David? In 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, we read about him. It tells us now, in all Israel there was no one as handsome as Absalom. So highly praised from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. What did Solomon's physical beauty do for him? What did his incredibly luxurious hair end up doing for Absalom? Well, he ended up hanging from the branch of a great oak tree by that beautiful hair, having three darts trussed into his heart while yet alive, and then the ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounding him and killing him. Remember the statement that had been made concerning the Lord's choice of King David years before the birth of David's son, Absalom? Samuel had been sent to anoint a king who would take Saul's place. He was sent to Jesse, for one of Jesse's sons had been chosen by God to be the new king. Let's look at 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7. The passage says, Then it came about when they entered, that he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Did you ever stop to think that Jesus could have looked any way God chose? But the only statement we have that even approximate a physical description of Jesus is found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. That prophetic passage says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That sort of thing sure didn't mean much to Jesus, did it? How about the pride of superiority? This is the one that causes someone to think that they are better than somebody else for any reason. It is the opposite of love, really. The Apostle Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that love does not brag and is not arrogant. Why would anyone think that they were better than anyone else, especially in the Lord's church? The truth of the matter is that there is not one of us who is superior to any other of us. Is that not one of the primary points of Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, where Paul wrote, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Look with me at Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. This took place at what is known as the Last Supper. The passage says, And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. 
And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. But let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. In light of the Lord's teaching, I can't understand why any Christian would ever feel superior to any other or make a statement that would imply such superiority. We would all do well to keep in mind Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14, which tells us, And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. What about the pride of will? I think you all know what I mean. The old way is my way is better than your way or my way or the highway manner of looking at things. It's a whole lot like Diotrephes that John wrote about in 3 John 9. He said, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. What does the life of Jesus teach us about the pride of will? Well, let's see. Going over to John chapter 5 and verse 30, we find Jesus saying, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Moving over just one chapter to John 6, we read verses 38 through 40. There Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Who can forget the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. That's Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. Even the Lord Jesus did not insist upon having his own way. That is exactly how the apostles taught the first century Christians to think and conduct themselves. Again, I cannot help but think of Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. That is the very point that is taught and then exemplified in Christ. Paul wrote, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is the epitome of regarding others as more important than self. It is the absolute best example of submitting one's own will to the will of another. And finally, but about the pride of resentment. You know, sometimes folks get awfully mad, downright vindictive, if they think that they have been abused or sinned against in any way. Others get mad when the word of God hits a little too close to home and attack the messenger. But what does the life of Jesus teach us about that? Luke chapter 23 verse 34 tells us, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The sin of pride. Just some words to think about. Thanks for listening.